Welcome to 30-Minute Theology, where we discuss the basics of Catholic belief and practice. Your host is John Bacon. I'm your co-host, Brother Mark. And today, John is going to be talking about epistemology. John, why don't you tell us about epistemology? Well, epistemology is a really fancy-sounding word, um, and we're talking about it so you can sound smart. Not really, but uh, it is a big word, so I'm going to break it down. Pistis is the Greek word for belief or faith, which we as Christians are obviously concerned with. Ology, the knowledge of, the study of, so theology, study of God, epistemology, the study of belief. Uh, Also just simply the study of knowledge. Epistemology is one of the three classic dimensions of philosophy. So you look back at Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and all the footnotes to them ever since. These are the three realms that you're concerned with. First off, the question of what is. Uh, As little children, we are all metaphysicists. We ask the question, what is out there? What is the universe made of? This is uh, a really profound philosophical question. And what is leads us to a second question, which is equally important. Then how ought I to live? This is the question of ethics. Based on what is, i.e. metaphysics, what should I be? Ethics. And then there's this third question that is actually the link between metaphysics and ethics. It's epistemology. How do I know that? How can I know? So a philosophy is uh, literally the love of wisdom, philosophia. Um, epistemology is kind of asking, so like, what what is the path to find her wisdom? Epistemology is is examining the path that will lead us to um, right understanding of reality, which will produce right action in our lives. Well, we certainly need a right path to reality today. Uh, Okay, so John, you're going to be working off two quotations. One is by a philosopher by the name of Blaise Pascal, and he said, The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. We know the truth not only by the reason, but by the heart. And you'll be looking at Romans chapter 10, verse 9, uh, which Paul writes, Because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we're going to have a future episode in this podcast devoted exclusively to the Catholic Church's emphasis on the unity of faith and reason. Now, I'm not going to explain that now, uh, but suffice it to say, the Catholic Church does not ask us to believe anything irrational. It actually forbids us <laughs> to believe and, and live irrationally. So when Pascal says... Uh, We know the truth, not only by the reason, but by the heart. Blaise Pascal was a loyal Catholic. So let's break down what he's saying. Um, I remember in high school, there's a very famous song called Listen to Your Heart. And it meant not what Pascal says. So often in contemporary culture and art, the heart simply means the place of, of feelings and sentiments. And, you know, those are valid. Those are part of our makeup as human beings. They need to be respected. But they should not be the final arbiter of truth. So what in the world uh, could Pascal be saying? Well, the way I understand Pascal, and I've got this through Peter Kraft, one of my favorite Catholic authors. And he's the philosopher at Boston College. 
That's right. He, I love Peter Kraft. Um, the heart is it's the center of our loves, obviously, but it's also the center of very deep intuitive knowledge. You see, we human beings, we have two uh, necessary complementary ways of knowing, just as the human species is male and female, and neither one is privileged above the other, but both are needed for full human flourishing and are, are necessary for the generation of the offspring. So these two modes of knowing are necessary for the generation of knowledge, of coming to a conclusion. And those two realms are the analytical and the intuitive. So analytical knowledge, um, an example of that would be formal logic or uh, mathematics, the things in school that I did poorly <laughs> because I was a more right-brained artistic child um, that thought more intuitively. Now, both of these are good. God created us with both of these um, ways of knowing. The problem is, is that in our particular moment in history, those two ways of knowing have actually been divorced from one another, uh, been kept separate from one another, and it has resulted in strange philosophy and strange ways of living. So my hope in this episode is that we can take a look at what's a more integrated way of knowing, and does the Catholic Church point us to any figures that illumine that? Okay, well, why don't you explain that for us? One of my favorite figures who speaks about a more unified way of knowing is, he was canonized as a saint, I think just a year ago, Cardinal John Henry Newman. Now, I love John Henry Newman for a lot of reasons. First off, he was an Anglican priest, which I actually was uh, less than a year ago. I resigned in order to join the Catholic Church and become a catechist. We have that in common. Uh, that is where our commonalities probably end because uh, he died a cardinal in the church and was canonized as saint. But uh, I love him, and I am indebted to him for my conversion and also uh, just this whole process of understanding what belief consists of. So Newman, he lives uh, in this modern world that we inhabit. Uh, he is a British Christian, and he is surrounded by um, two camps which he cannot resonate with, with either one of them. One would be what he would call the sentimentalists, um, and he, we, he called uh, liberal Christianity. Um, and this Christianity is liberal not because of its political views, but because it has accepted the claims of modernity. And this is the claim of modernity. Uh, this comes to us from founders of uh, Enlightenment philosophy like Descartes and British empiricism. It says this, We should give as much credence to a belief as rational evidence is supplied. So, this sounds a lot like common sense. This comes from John Locke. Uh, and John Locke is a smart man. This is his argument. As much data as there is for something... That's how strongly you should hold to it. Mm. So we can think uh, here in the modern world of things that we have a lot of data for. Um, maybe this is part of why we've been so obsessed with like COVID updates and stuff is because we consider scientific knowledge to be very concrete. Mm. So if we see data, man, we turn our lives upside down. That's kind of John Locke's principle. And it sounds very convincing. Newman was unconvinced by it. Why? For two reasons. 
First off, because the Christians who accepted Newman's, uh, not Newman's, the the um, the Christians who accepted John Locke's premise that we should assent belief only to the extent that data is provided, had relegated Christianity simply to pious wish, kind of a subjective sentiment. What Friedrich Schleiermacher called the feeling of absolute dependence upon the absolute. Now, I don't know what that means. It sounds beautiful, and it, it probably— very smart. And maybe got me rebaptized at church camp once, but <laughs> it doesn't provide any dogmatic foundation or, or any sort of shared ethical way for living. Um, the second reason Newman disagreed with John Locke's premise is he said, well, that sounds very true. In fact, it sounds unassailable in formal logic. But let's take that to day-to-day life. Is it actually livable? And uh, impressively, this is how Newman actually uh, anticipated post-modernity. The relationship between modernity and post-modernity would be a whole other episode. How we've gone from Locke and uh, belief in science and a very rational world to a world where like, we believe in infinite numbers of gender, which is completely unscientific. That's a long discussion. But Newman anticipates it. Because what he anticipates is that we actually do not live lives from logic alone. And if we did live life from logic alone, that would not make us virtuous, but actually one-dimensional. So let's give some, some, evident, some examples of this. First off, Newman, like Blaise Pascal, he's not advocating irrationalism. He's not advocating that reason occupied less space in someone's way of thinking and living. He's simply exposing that it's not the only way of knowing. He distinguishes between two forms of knowing, which he calls inference. Inference simply means what we know from data. Uh, Formal inference is what we use in the classroom. You use it in algebra. You use it in uh, logic. If you were at a school that still taught that, Um, it's used in science. For certain. And what science knows, what logic knows, what mathematics knows, it knows with certainty. And it can demonstrate it. And it can compel what Newman calls notional assent. Assent being we accept the validity, the truthfulness of an assertion. Notional because, well, we don't have experience with it. I mean, I've never been to Pluto. I trust the scientists on whatever you say about it because it makes sense to me. So these are the things that we assent to. But then that's, that's classroom knowledge. It's good. It, it deepens us. It broadens our understanding. But it's not the only way we know. In addition to notional assent, which is acquired through formal inference, formal reasoning by the rules of logic, there's also something called actual assent. And for... Normal people like us, that's probably where we live about 90% of our lives, which is strange because it's it's the subconscious, which, um, man, you take modern psychologists who disagree with one another on so much. One scene, thing seems to be agreed upon in the, in the psychological community, not much, but this agreement seems to be there. Most of who we are actually is subconscious. 
It's very hard to analyze, very hard to express, oftentimes very painful to access, but it is the book of who we are. So kind of what what this would be, the reason that this is really important is because, like you said, it, it's actually how we live. Yes. People navigate the world, they cope with the world, they interact with the world, not because we sat down and we read a bunch of stuff about the world. We get through life, we know life, we know other people, we know how to like I say, cope and get through life because of this other way to know. Is that what you're saying? That's right. So Newman would agree with John Locke. If John Locke reduces his argument, we should assent to the extent that proper argumentation is provided. He would agree with that if it's within the framework of those parts of life that that's actually livable. The problem is that John Locke didn't live his life that way. I mean, I hope not. If he did, he didn't have a happy life. What's, an, what's another way of knowing? Well, our subconscious can be formed. Although it cannot always be mastered or understood, it can be formed. So how do we judge reality from the deeper part of us? Well, he gives an example. This is what he calls informal inference. And here's how Newman, John Henry Newman, defines informal inference. He calls it the subtle, invisible, and often unconscious process of weighing and accumulating converging possibilities. Having defined Newman's concept of the illative sense, that process of weighing and accumulating convergent possibilities, often by subtle, invisible, and even unconscious means. Let me give three quick examples. No, four. Four examples. We're going to do one from science, one from law, one from psychotherapy, and finally one from relationships. First, science. In the realm of science, Sir Isaac Newton, not to be confused with John Henry Newman, who we've been discussing, Sir Isaac Newton was famous for having an intuitive theory, not because there's any direct evidence to support his theory, but rather because his theory supplemented the gaps in other theories which did have empirical evidence. Here are Cardinal John Henry Newman's own words for Sir Isaac Newton's genius. He says this, Sometimes I say this illative faculty is nothing short of genius. Such seems to have been Newton's perception of truths in mathematical and physical although proof was absent. At least that is the impression left on my own mind by various stories which are told of him, one of which was stated in the public papers a few years ago. Professor Sylvester, it was said, has just discovered the proof of Sir Isaac Newton's rule for ascertaining the imaginary roots of equations. This rule has been a Gordian knot among algebraists for the last century and a half. The proof being wanting, Authors became ashamed at length of advancing a proposition, the evidence for which rested on no other foundation than belief in Newton's own brilliance. So, there you have it. Even in the realm of science, we can assent to a scientific theory with certainty, not because there is incontrovertible evidence for it, but rather because it supplies a satisfactory explanation for what is already known. Although Newton did not have the empirical evidence to buttress his theory, he somehow intuitively perceived it, and it took years, but eventually other fellow scientists found the data that demonstrated what he had known all along. This also occurs both in law and in counseling. Once again, Cardinal Newman provides us 
with this example. This is from the writings of a judicial expert uh, contemporary to himself who said, quote, In criminal prosecutions, the circumstantial evidence should be such as to produce nearly the same degree of certainty as that which arises from direct testimony and to exclude a rational probability of innocence. Think about that. A jury, which has the duty to determine whether or not uh, the person is guilty or innocent, they have the duty to rightly acquit or condemn a man even in the absence of forensics or eyewitness account based on converging probabilities. The jury must give a verdict even in the absence of clear proof based on their intuitive sense of the most compelling explanation. And I enjoy this example even more in psychotherapy. So if you've ever been to therapy, you may have experienced this, you may have a loved one that has experienced this. Clients are frequently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder or having suffered sexual abuse or something of that intense gravity, not because the therapist has direct access to the client's past, because they don't have that, but rather because there is a cluster of converging data. They can be something like psychological trauma, unwanted behavior, mysterious triggers, relational patterns, and these all converge to point to an unproven yet common point, trauma of a particular type. Very often, these converging facts of the suffering person tell a much clearer story than their own recollection. This is known as a reverse diagnosis, and it is not uncommon in helping suffering clients. Lastly, in the realm of relationships, it is not only impractical but often insulting to seek watertight proof rather than converging likelihoods. When determining who we can trust and who we cannot trust, we simply must exercise discernment based on the data that we do have. Some of this data is rational and cognitive, but some of it is subconscious and intuitive. We must rely on both. To reject the mystery of the other person, to attempt to know others objectively by Aristotelian proof rather than by informal inference is not only foolish, it is actually neurotic and unhealthy. I think that this is really worth looking at deeper. If Cardinal John Henry Newman is right, then not just in matter of religions, not only dimensions of belief, but in matters of everyday life, all the way from increasing scientific knowledge to administering justice to gaining psychological clarity and recovery from trauma to simply having meaningful and deepening relationships, we have to acquire actual concrete knowledge through sophisticated, subtle means. We have to truly know what is true without recourse to absolute logical proof. Here's where I think John Henry Newman provides us with a really helpful image. I think so often we imagine knowledge as a sort of pyramid that we build from the ground up with irrefutable proofs. Cardinal John Henry Newman prefers the image of a spider web. Although spiders can creep us, I think that uh, most people, including myself, recognize spider webs as being intricately beautiful. If you look closely at a spider web, it is not linear but it is designed. Through its circular design, everything from the absolute center to the, its farthest edge is connected. The pattern that holds the spider web together is not only structured, but artistic. And 
Above all, it is all one singular united web in the diversity of its parts. See, as Christians, we assume the integrity, the interconnectedness of all reality. This is something that uh, separates Christian from pagan mythology. We see not myths of chaos and disharmony, but despite the apparent chaos of day-to-day life, we perceive a deeper harmony, a deeper unitive truth beneath it all. So come back to the spider web. Once again, even though the spider web is one, it is very rare to see all of it at once. See, sunlight conceals parts and reveals other parts. We can see connections at some points of the web, other parts we have to intuit based on the pattern that we do see. In other words, we legitimately know what is unseen in the web based on what is seen in the web. Remember how we began this episode with the three basic fields of philosophy? Metaphysics, i.e., what is, what reality is made of, ethics, what you and I are meant for, what being asks of us, demands of us, what ethical action consists of, and epistemology, what this episode is all about, how we arrive at understanding, how we know, how we believe. Because remember, pistis in the Greek means both knowledge and belief. Newman's image of the spiderweb is based on the principle of integrity. For that reason, the spiderweb fits for all three fields of philosophy. So as you hold in your mind the image of the spiderweb, think of this, metaphysics. What is? What exists? Well, whatever is, it is all connected. It's one web. Second, ethics. How should we live? Well, within the pattern of that which is, within the pattern of the one web, and in accordance with it. Epistemology, how do we know? We know by perceiving the unity of the web, by perceiving the logic that holds it all together, the countless threads of the singular web. These are not necessarily mathematical proofs. They are converging likelihoods. They are the units of reality that accounts for the diversity of the cosmos. Well, what does this have to do with the belief? Although I don't have time or perhaps even the expertise to go into the detail of every Catholic argument for the existence of God, I would like to summarize four very quickly and then look at them based on Newman's own logic. First, St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor of the church, medieval priest, philosopher, theologian, par excellence. He is famous for the, uh, what is called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. It's very common sense. It goes like this. As we look at the universe, if we perceive harmony, if we perceive order, if we perceive that which is scientifically um, can be studied rationally, then we are assuming that there is a rationale. Well, if there is a rationale, if there is a design and intelligibility to the universe, the simplest explanation is that there is a designer and that he had a rationale. Likewise, coming back to Cardinal Newman, he saw from the universality and the power of conscience in the individual an argument for the existence of God. His argument basically goes like this. Each of us has an ab- a, a conscience, which in healthy people, people of integrity, we regard in some sense as absolute. absolute. It makes demands of us. It uh, compels us to action. 
oftentimes against our own inclination, our own desires, our own community. And yet we feel compelled to obey this. Why? Well, Newman's explanation, if you, if you trace it out, he, he concludes that the most natural explanation for the existence and the authority of the conscience is a giver of the conscience, a giver of the natural law for whom the conscience serves as a sort of prophet to each person, an intermediary. Lastly, this is one of my favorite arguments. It's an argument from C.S. Lewis, that wonderful author who wrote the Narnia series. His argument goes like this. For every universal desire of man, meaning here, of course, both men and women, there corresponds a complementary object. We hunger? Well, good, good news. Food exists. We thirst? Water exists. We are tired. Rest exists. We seek union and procreation. Sex exists. Whether or not our own individual desires will be satisfied is not the point of this argument. The point is that our actual desires point us to actual objects. What then do we do with two of the most powerful human desires? The desire for joy and the desire for immortality. The desire for abundant life that never dies. The desire for eternal life. Not only life without death, but life without unfulfilled desire. These two desires are actually one desire. The desire for heaven. Like conscience, the desire for heaven may express itself differently according to temperament and personality. Nonetheless, buried deep in every human heart is this nagging longing for something which the world can never fill. So here with C.S. Lewis's argument, we are brought back to Newman's epistemology of intuition and Pascal's epistemology of the heart. First, the epistemology of intuition, what Newman calls informal inference. Do any of these proofs for the existence of God, design, existence, definition, conscience, or joy, by themselves, individually, prove God in an irrefutable, conclusive way? I don't think so. But as we bring them closer to one another, do they harmonize? Does the evidence grow or shrink as they are considered? I propose that these are called proofs by the Catholic Church, not in the sense that one of them by themselves proves the existence of God once and for all, but rather that in the illative sense of converging probabilities which are weighed and analyzed by the mind, they tell a same story which is one is weighed upon another, become overwhelming. As G.K. Chesterton points out in his wonderful work, Orthodoxy, the conspiracy theorist is not a conspiracy theorist because he is illogical. Not at all. Logic actually is his prison in a certain sense. His problem is that he rejects all data which contradicts the logically tight insular world he inhabits, a world without loose ends or mystery. I believe that many epistemological narratives today are reductionistic in the sense of the conspiracy theorist. People who reduce all truth claims, all philosophy, all theology, in other words, all heavenly things. People who reduce those for disguises for earthly things, power, struggle, sex, science, commit the logical fallacy of the conspiracy theorist. They chop off the 90% of the spider web that they don't understand to reframe the 10% that they do understand. 
the deny the reality of that which they do not desire or do not understand in order to reframe that little particle of reality which is familiar to them. So, the first principle of reasoned epistemology is this. Assume the unity of being. Assume the unity of the web. Assume the web is bigger than your own philosophy or preoccupation. Assume that the points of light we do see shed light on the shadow we do not see. Or, to put it uh, in more accurate terms, assume that uh, the shadows we see point to the points of light we do not see. Where empirical analysis is impossible, seek understanding by faith. The second is this. Assume the unity of yourself. Do not imagine one world with your mind, love another world with your heart, and walk in another with your feet. Don't live on three different webs. In other words, don't be a hypocrite. Don't live as if life is a beautiful gift and humans are worthy of sacrificial love, and yet tell yourself that in the end none of that is true. Remember Pascal's words. The heart has its reasons, which reason knows nothing of. We know the truth not only by the reason, but by the heart. Sit alone with your heart. Listen to it. Learn from it. Don't quiet it with mental gymnastics and distractions. Let it tell you what it longs for, and then go looking with it. Don't live life with your mind closed and your heart numb. Let your head, your heart, and your hands get on the same page and go in the same direction for the same purpose. Here's the third final principle. As Catholics, we are insistent on the integrity of the visible and invisible, of faith and reason, of heart and head, because we know Jesus Christ, the center of the web, that logic holding being together, that reconciliation of heaven and earth, we find in Jesus of Nazareth. And throughout 30-Minute Theology, we hope to dive deeper into that single mystery of Jesus every week. And I think the important for this, for today, is when we have people, you have secular people, maybe Charles Taylor's thought, but people or atheists, people who deny that there's anything out there. Yeah. Um, we feel those cross pressures. So the person who says, yeah, but I don't believe in the transcendent, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the immortal. It's like, yeah, but if you're honest, like you're saying, or if I'm hearing you correctly, if you're honest with your desires, and according to Lewis, if you have a desire, there must be a full, a, an ability to fulfill that. And so people who are feeling, it's a great way to maybe speak to people who say, well, there's nothing out there. Yes, but do you have a desire for a rich, fulfilling, meaningful life? Okay, well, how can you possibly fulfill that? And maybe it's a way to open up a dialogue with people who say, well, there's not, actually nothing out there. And I'm perfectly happy with Thirty Minute Theology is a podcast provided by the missionaries of Saint Patine, an apostolate dedicated to catechesis and evangelization. We exist to make the good news of Jesus Christ and the teachings of this church accessible and understood. To learn more about the missionaries of St. Fatimi and to access materials related to this podcast, please visit our website, saintfotini.force.com. The 30-Minute Theology is helpful to you. Please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, and please consider supporting our work. Thank you for joining us.